Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. 65 million years ago, a massive object from outer space slammed into what is now the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. A five-mile-wide asteroid made a crater 12 miles deep and 180 across, which is still visible today. Many scientists believe this catastrophic event killed three-quarters of life on Earth and caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. When the evidence for this impact was first discovered in the early 1980s, it reawakened interest in the theory of geology, which had long fallen out of fashion. Catastrophe. Catastrophism is the idea that the Earth's surface has been shaped by a series of drastic events. The term is particularly associated with the 19th century French geologist Georges Cuvier, who believed that fossils of extinct creatures proved that the world had undergone some major catastrophes in its past. Although his ideas have been long disregarded by scientists, recent discoveries suggest that he may have had a point. With me to discuss catastrophism are Andrew Scott, Lieber Hume Emeritus Fellow in the Department of Earth Sciences at Royal Holloway University of London, Jan Zalashevich, Senior Lecturer in Geology at the University of Leicester, and Lucia Veneer, Visiting Scholar at the Faculty of Life Sciences at the University of Manchester. Andrew Scott, catastrophism was an important theory in geology for many years. Before we get into it in more detail, could you tell us what it is? Okay. William Huell, in 1832, defined the word catastrophism, and he also actually t- coined the term uniformitarianism. Catastrophism, he said, was the Earth had been affected in the past by sudden, short-lived, violent events, and these were possibly worldwide in scope, and it was really to get the idea that maybe one or several global floods had affected the Earth, and the last being interpreted by some, at least, as being Noah's flood. So it was very much in terms of trying to give a, a, a name, if you like, to a whole series of ideas that the Earth had you know, been affected by a whole series of floods in Earth history. Apart from Noah's flood, which he drew on as evidence because he had a, a leaning towards using the Bible as a source of history, uh, what other evidence did he give for that? I think the idea of, of Huell was to actually um, really just coin the term to, to, to give... Um, a way of putting together a whole series of different people's beliefs that the, the Earth had undergone a series of revolutions and a series of um, major flood events through through time. I think at that time he was he was more a philosopher rather than actually a geologist in in, in the in the true sense. But he was really trying to contrast that with uniformitarianism, which he said, which was just being sort of more or less proposed from Hutton and then Lyle on in which. It was stated that the same laws and processes operated in the past as they did today and at the same rate. In other words, what we often call the present is the key to the past. So he was trying to contrast those two different viewpoints in, 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 in coining those terms. Can we go in a little more specifically here? So he thought that the Earth's surface, the shape of the Earth, was formed basically, if we can be elliptical here, basically by a series of catastrophes, the first of which might have been... Uh, uh, the the idea of the Earth shaped rapidly and uh, and vigorously in in six days, and then Noah's flood. that really was the great shaper. And the opposite was the idea that no, this was a gradualist uh, a evolution. Uh, and we can come to that a bit later. But I'd just like to define what he meant by catastrophe. Yes, I think that's what he was trying to say. That that's what a whole series of people had had sort of and put together those two opposing viewpoints, if you like. And he was trying to contrast them and the philosophy behind them. 
So it goes back, you know, as, as we'll hear, to, to a whole series of, of people who had been developing those ideas based upon biblical ideas initially and then looking at the geological record and trying to interpret the geological record. But then it was later on with, with Hutton and Lyle who said, well, hang on a minute, it's not quite as um, you know, people suggest in terms of major global catastrophes. But just to, to nail it a bit more, I'm sorry, but you, so he's saying the fact that there are mountains, the fact that there are seas, the fact that these, these, these divisions between continents, these, this great sh the outside, the general shape of the planet came through, not gradualism, but was really marked by, because of catastrophism. Yes, so that's the idea of what catastrophism is, yes. Yes. Okay, Lucia Veneer, the idea of a global catastrophe, we have, as I've said, goes back to Noah's flood. Um, how, far, how much attention was paid to such events before the discipline of catastrophe came in? Um, well, it's, it's um, as Andrew has said, Hewell coined the term in 1832. So um, before that, we've got um, a long series of ideas from the Renaissance and, and indeed from the ancient world, um, which to us look very much like catastrophism, although that wasn't obviously what they were calling it. Um, so Can you give us some uh, taste of those examples? Yes. Um, in the Renaissance... Um, you begin to get people... People have been doing natural history, so they've been collecting specimens, they've been cataloguing them, um, criticising ancient authorities. But in the Renaissance, people also begin to say, well, what caused these phenomena that we've been describing? So so what causes earthquakes? What, what causes floods? Um, and people begin to draw on what they've got to hand, which, for a historical document, is most obviously uh, the Bible. So in 1638, Robert Flood produced something which he called a mosaical geology. So that's drawing on Moses's account um, in Genesis. Um, but also on the continent, ideas are beginning to um, develop as well. Descartes touches on um, on sort of the formation of the Earth, or rather the formation of Earths, really. His is a very speculative idea about how the earth might have formed um, but that's not really what he's interested in he touches on that and then moves on to to his more philosophical interests um, so probably the place to really start nailing these down is Thomas Burnett's Sacred History of the Earth in 1681 which drew on some of Descartes' ideas about how the earth formed but also drew heavily as obviously the word sacred in that title suggests on biblical accounts um, now, Burnett was no biblical literalist. He wasn't interpreting Genesis um, utterly literally. He was seeing it as sort of more an allegorical description. But at the same time, his, his theory is heavily theological. Um, and it has this progressive um, teleological um, idea of the earth going through a series of changes. Um, so he's drawing heavily on, for example, Noah's flood, that um, after Noah's flood is when mountains form for Burnett. Um, before that, the world is perfect, and then with Noah's flood, you get the changes that we see around us now, mountains, continents, seas. Um, so... He sees Noah's flood as happening before there were any human beings on the planet, doesn't he? Um, more or less, I mean, because it's... Because Noah's flood yes, is because of Noah, who was a human being <laughs> on the planet. It's, it's a very short time yeah. for him between... Um, so the earth is a paradise for him before the flood. It's the flood that really causes 
um, all so the... So he has a short earth history idea, does he? What yes. sort of history is he talking about, 6,000 years or something? Yeah, he's, he's on that kind of time scale. Yeah. He's, he's, he's not signing up to any sort of very specific dates, um, but he's on, a, he's on a biblical time scale. Yes, and and he's certainly using the biblical as a reliable. Uh, sorry, the Bible as a reliable record, chronologically speaking. So his theory is built history. on that flood. We keep going back again, and again to the flood. Is there anything? Which is fine. Is there anything else that he brings to bear as evidence from the Bible treated as history, or does he does he shore this up with incidents uh, in, with events that happened in classical literature, or, or they yes. might call it pagan literature? Yes, um, there's um, a certain amount of shoring it up with um, events from classical times that probably the most notable would be Pompeii and the eruption of Vesuvius um, as as recorded by Pliny um, but doesn't he doesn't doesn't he mark the fact that that was a local event yes and so he's but he's talking about a, the globe and we and, and Pliny's talking about the Bay of Naples that's a very key point for him yes um, the, the the volcanic eruption of Vesuvius is obviously a very relatively speaking a small event it's catastrophic locally obviously but it's not um it's not global it's not universal the flood is the key thing to which we can attribute um global phenomena such as mountain chains um you need to look for possibly other kinds of explanations he's trying to find naturalistic explanations for things like earthquakes and volcanoes which he realizes do not occur everywhere um, whereas evidence of flooding um, does occur very widely. Um, obviously, there are things like rivers everywhere. Shorelines are very similar in lots of places. So he's 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 finding it slightly difficult to account for what are clearly some global and some local and he's juggling phenomena. It with, I'm sorry, he's juggling it with the Bible as well, though, isn't he? He's keeping, but there's this business of um, uh, there's this business of. Uh, Uniformitarianism, which is creeping up alongside, is it, is, does he feel threatened by that at all? Uh, yes, um, I mean that's certainly in the in the seventeenth century. So when Burnett is writing sixteen eighty one, that that kind of idea would have been very strange, very unusual. Most people are sticking within this kind of biblical chronology, and um, Burnett is one of Burnett's targets. Was um, an author who had suggested that the flood, in fact, was not universal. So, so Burnett is very much positing um, a global event for that. Um, but he then, in return, had criticism that he wasn't sticking closely enough to biblical chronologies. So um, the debate is around Burnett's work and the controversy it generates into the 18th century only leads into these uniformitarian ideas, again, a later coining one of, the fascinating, sorry, sorry, me. One of the fascinating things for me about reading about this is this almost like a geological event in itself, the massive change that we see very occasionally in civilizations of thinking out of one sort of thought history content to another. I mean, in that case, in this case, the Jewish Christian tradition, which provided history and causes and everything, to another, the Enlightenment scientist. This is the shift across. It's fascinating to watch that happen because these extraordinarily clever men are, uh, are, are working on one certainty, as they think, towards another what becomes equal certainty. We're at a bridge point here. Would you agree with that, uh, Jan? Uh, yes, yes, very much. Uh, and uh, there is a a change from accepting well it goes back it's not I think just the 
the biblical tradition, but also the, if you like, the legacy of Aristotle, and saying this is how the world is, and, and you take the uh, the authority of, of the great scholars of the past. Two, actually saying, well, this is what we can see of the world, now how can we work out what actually went on? Uh, and, and that transition, which is kind of late mid-late 18th century going to the 19th century uh, it's fascinating because mm. you know you, you have all manner of of, uh, of quite different views of the world coexisting you know even being you know within the same person at times let's take this man the frenchman buffon aristocratic chap but we'll leave it with buffon what did he bring to this uh, argument well he uh, he was one of the first if you like professional scientists naturalists you know he, he's been his uh, dates? His dates. Uh, he worked um, he, uh, almost through the 18th century. He, he died just before the French Revolution. Luckily, he died in 1788. And he worked, he, I think he lived to be 80-ish. You know, so he lived through that century. Uh, and he was very much a part of, he became part of the establishment, you know, what then became the Ancien Regime. Uh, and he worked as a, a scientist, and he developed one of the many things he did. He wrote... 36 volumes of the Histoire Naturelle. Um, uh, 36 volumes? Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, um, a retirement project for me, I think. Uh, but he, what he wrote late in life was the first scientifically based history of the Earth, what the geologists would call the first stratigraphy, uh, where he divided Earth history up into seven epochs, right from the beginning, from the formation of the Earth, to the present, where there are humans. Uh, and he based this uh, not on on, on uh, biblical accounts, uh, but he based it on what he could see uh, on the ground and uh, what he could read about that other people had seen, uh, and then a lot of, of course, interpolation in between. Was this considered to be an advance in thinking about this area? Uh, it was well, it was controversial. I think it was so. So some it was uh, it clearly was an advance looking at with hindsight it, it, um, and some of his uh, interpretations are spot on you know I read them as a geologist Such as. Uh, for instance he recognised there were um, he was the first person I think to clearly state that extinctions had happened there, there were creatures in the past which were no longer alive because they had become extinct uh, and he, he, he did this with uh, ammonites and belemnites things you could see in the rocks in the Jurassic strata of where he lived around Mombard uh, and he also did the same thing, which Cuvier then developed uh, with the mastodon, this creature which shared characteristics of different animals, but which, which was clearly no longer alive. Uh, and, and this was part of, of, of his epochs of past, past life. And his timescale is interesting, because in the timescale, you know, what is catastrophic? It depends how long history is. He first started thinking that, rather like Hutton, the Earth is endless, a rather misty thing, no, no, no beginning, no end. And then he thought about it, and he said, no, the Earth has to have a beginning and an end. Uh, and he devised a published timescale of 75,000 years, uh, which at that time was enormous. And he took great pains to say, to try and help people understand this enormous timescale, you know, think of it as money, he said. Um, uh, and that was an advance. He was nervous about it, because it was clearly a non-biblical timescale. So he had to have some very fancy footwork to keep, you know, the, the Sorbonne, the religious establishment, not too unhappy, and yet to take the ideas forward. The, but the man most often associated with catastrophism is another Frenchman, Georges Cuvier. What picture did he present? 
He presented, again, he developed the ideas. Uh, he, he, Buffon's ideas fairly quickly, I think, became lost because he was part of the, the Ancien Regime. Uh, and, and also Cuvier was a, a man who, who had a, a great belief in, in his own powers of, of, uh, as a scientist. Uh, but Cuvier, um, again, demonstrated even more clearly that there were creatures in the past which had become extinct, which were no longer around. And he also Why looked, was that so important? Uh, I think to say that the world was different then. Ah. You know, because if, if uh, at that time, you know, do you simply have the world as it is, but simply going back in the past for either a, a biblical length of time or some indefinite length of time, or has the world truly changed? Andrew Scott, can, we ju- can you just take that up about Cuvier battling with Christianity and science at the same time? It is fascinating, these two bodies of not fascinates me. I'm sure it's interest listeners too. So yeah, I think... W- w- how is he making that work for him? Yeah, Cuvier is a very interesting character because, in fact, he was a Huguenot. He was a very determined Protestant, Protestant in France and, uh, in fact, a Lutheran. And he took the view that, actually, Catholics did everything by authority, but... Uh, Protestants actually could argue, argue. and uh, so he did everything in faith, and so he said, in faith, everything is submitted to argumentation. Um, but I didn't what quite he get that. In faith, what everything is is everything is submitted to argumentation. Submitted, so you submitted. can argue about things. Yeah. In other words, you need to look for evidence and to argue. So he, but he wished to discover laws by observation. And in some extent, he separated geological observation from his own Christian philosophy because he was a very devout Christian, and in fact, he was president of the French Bible Society and so on. So, I mean, he was he was very passionate in his religious beliefs, but when he was doing his geological observations, he really wanted to separate out the two. So, when he made his observations of successive strata with different animals, particularly. Um, he he didn't really want to engage in this idea of it being related to a, um, if you like, a religious timescale. But it was very interesting because his work was originally published in French. It was then translated by Robert Jameson into English. But unfortunately, Jameson had a very religious viewpoint, and in his editing and his notes, he made it seem as though. Cuvier took this idea of these successive events with different organisms as, as to be biblical in nature and part of various floods and particularly to do with Noah's floods. So Cuvier got very much attached, particularly by Buckland and others, uh, as being catastrophism is actually part of the b- biblical tradition of looking at a whole series of events which consumed the earth, followed the last one of which was Noah's flood. But actually, Cuvier himself never said that. So he demonstrated that the successive series of strata which were deposited with different animals and some had gone extinct. But he he really wanted to try to separate his own religious viewpoint from, if, if you like, his scientific work. <coughs> Lucian Veneer, was that hard for him intellectually to do that, or emotionally even? And, and then let's talk about how this, these ideas wind through with other scholars over the next century or so. But was it difficult for him? Did he find it... I I don't think I don't think he did no um Why not? it's it's very there seem to be here two very distinct traditions um and in the it's much more noticeable in the british tradition that um geologists have tried to certainly in the 18th and 19th centuries have a sort of a theological 
theoretical basis. But continental geologists much more often didn't work like that. And um, so I think for Cuvier, it was it was actually very important for him in this new regime in France that was less religious, less... It, it was meant to sort of change everything. The, the whole establishment was supposed to change post-revolution, exactly. Yeah, zero. It was... Yeah. Exactly. It was very easy for him to say these two things must be kept separate. In in terms of my scientific work, the Bible is simply a historical document to be analysed alongside the historical records of other cultures. Um, he, he used Indian and Chinese records when he could get hold of them, which I don't think was very often, but he did try. Um, and, and he was very keen on... Um, really just looking at the strata looking at the the fossils in the strata and he was really the first person to suggest that you could identify strata by the fossils they contained and that's why it was so important to identify the fossils so carefully right now when, as, as Andrew has indicated when this came came when, when it moved on came to England um, uh, and the ideas were taken up they were either consciously or unconsciously uh, they reverted to becoming part of the Christian scholarship tradition. Is that right? There was say, yeah. Yes, there was certainly a tendency towards that, you know, mm. with, with, with Jameson's uh, refashioning, you know, of, of, of Cuvier. Uh, and, and, and let's say the, the early, uh, rather conscious attempts to, to take geology, the, 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 the coming observational science, uh, and fitting that, you know, into a religious or a biblical framework, as with Buckland's early work. I wanted yeah. to move on precisely yes, to yeah. William Buckland, and also to say that this time geology did, was the word geology applied to this study yet? Uh, it was a sort of rare, r rare area of study for persons regarded as eccentric. In Buckland's case, spectacularly eccentric, we're told. Um, and so these, these, as it were. Boffin's bods were roving around on the edges of, of, of real scholarship, as it were. I just want to get its place. It's still hovering around the edges. And what did Buckland do that was significant? Well, Buckland, um, one of the things he did, and he did many. He was he was he was quite a versatile, what we would call today, geologist. Uh, and the word they call it then? Well, the, the Geological Society of London certainly. You know, goes from uh, you know eighteen the, the the mid the early mid nineteenth century. Uh, whether Buckland called himself a geologist, I yes, he did. We're not we saying yes, nodding around the he table that, that he did. Good. We got that cleared up. Yes. Okay, so what did what did he do? He did well. One of the things he he did he looked at the the most recent deposits, which and uh, if you do any geology at all, you will clearly see that. At the surface of the Earth, there is a deposit which is clearly different from the underlying and more ancient strata. And now, we know that England, Britain is a paradise for geology <laughs> because of the so many differences in it, but where did he do his studies? Where did he put his trowel? Well, uh, uh, he, uh, southern England a lot, and there's a place called Kirkland Cave that he investigated, which had bones of hyenas and such like in. Uh, and, and, and ideas about that switched from uh, these being the remains of animals swept in by the flood... So yeah. we're back to Noah with the We're hyenas. back to Noah. Yeah. And then Buckland came in and looked more closely. Uh, and, and then, over the years, he said, no, these animals actually lived in the cave for quite some time. Uh, and then... He How said, did you find that out? Simply by um, 
by doing what we'd call geology, the, the forensic arts, you know, the... the um, yeah, but where, I, I, I he, sort of realised that, yes. but what were the forensic arts in those days? What well, for instance, if, if you look at the bones and see whether they're all smashed up or whether they represent a more or less whole skeleton, mm-hmm. you can look at the contents of the cave, and he recognised these things, um, uh, which he called coprolites, his word, uh, fossilised animal droppings. They were there present in the cave as well as the skeletons. So, therefore, a good indication that we had a living community and not a, a dead, smashed-up one brought into the cave. Right. That community was covered by a layer of mud. Now, r- originally, he then said that there came a flood, you know, the, the, the deluge, to then cover this. Uh, but then later in life, uh, he, he then reworked that, who was part of the great change of that, from one catastrophe, which is a flood, to the other, you know, which is the, the glacial theory, the idea, the even more science-fiction-like idea to the day, of that day, uh, that the you didn't have a, a major flood going across the land, but the the land was covered by ice, maybe a, a mile thick. Another catastrophe. Another catastrophe, but a different. So he's still with catastrophes, and is still biblical this stage. No, at this well, the the uh, I think through his life, uh, his he my reading of it, you know, as a, a geologist and not as a historian of science, um, is that he stuck more to what he could develop from the rocks, from the evidence. He kept his faith, as, 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 as many people did, but again, it was a separation into what was later called the two magisteria. You, you have, as Andrew said, you, you have the religious framework, moral philosophy and so on, and then you have the evidence of the rocks. Uh, uh, Andrew, uh, back to you, Andrew Scott. The, so we've given catastrophism quite a good run, but there is this challenge coming up, and we'll use Charles Lyell as the man in the fourth, which we should. He was a great man. These three volumes in the early 1830s sort of set set the tone, set the pace for for gradualism. Darwin took one of his, the first of his volumes on the Beagle, and he influenced Darwin massively. So you've got Charles Lyell. Now, are we talking here about a different sort of mind? Is he... Uh, is he free of uh, Christianity and Christian history? Is he is he striking out in a different direction? And what is he doing? Yes, I think so. I think he wanted to have a very different viewpoint. If, if you like, the religious side didn't come into it as far as he was concerned. He was looking to develop a theory based upon, I suppose, what was known as vera causa, looking at causes you could see today going on. That's so, Newton's phrase, isn't it? Yes, that's Newton's phrase. True so, causes, yeah. So true causes. Yeah. So if you like, if he started his great work in 1830, or as you say, volume one of which went away with Darwin on the Beagle. Between 1830 and 1833, he published his Principles of Geology. Now, of course, it's interesting because it's in 1832 that Huell coined the term uniformitarianism. But Lyle, if you like, people talk about Lyle's book as being called The Principles of Geology, but actually you need to read the rest of the title, which is quite interesting, because it says, being an attempt to explain the former changes of the Earth's surface, Earth surface by reference to causes now in operation. So he was saying, well, let's look at the geology, let's look at the rocks and see the processes which are going on today, and let's try to interpret it that way. But what was key was this idea of a long geological timescale, which something which Hutton had been involved in earlier on, and it was, if you like, Hutton's view of the present is the key to the past was very influential in this. So, if you like, he looked at the modern world and the physical processes that were affecting it. He then deduced that they had functioned in the same way in the geological past. But 
He also presumed that these processes had always operated at the same way and at the same rates as they do today. And I think that was important, because if it's at the same rate, then you're talking about a long period. Lucia, um, Andrew's brought up the names of James Hutton, the Scottish farmer, uh, um, a geologist, scholar. Can we take it to him and what he added to it? Because this is this is this is beginning to move quite quickly now, isn't it? In, in geological terms. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, yes. I mean, Hutton. Um, his his first encounter, as it were, with with geology was he was a farmer and he realised the importance of soil erosion and the washing away of surface soils in order to sort of refertilise almost the ground. And he saw, therefore, that that you need some kind of constant effect. The soil washes away, how is it replaced um, over a longer period of time? If the, the, the topsoil is all being washed away, then you're going to need sort of some kind of uplift to maintain land versus sea and so on. So he's coming from, from that angle, but also he's um, in a very different intellectual tradition from a lot of the... English geologists, such as Buckland, um, a little later, of course, Buckland. But so in 1788, Hutton published his, or presented as a paper, in fact, to the Royal Society in Edinburgh, and then then published um, his theory of the Earth, um, and that's actually quite a, a, an important name for it. He he is in this tradition all the way for a century before from Burnett of these huge theories. Um, entitled Theory of the Earth. It's kind of a genre that's grown over the last century. So Hutton is, in literary terms, in that kind of tradition. Um, but he's coming at it from a very different angle. Hutton was a deist, um, so he has a, a belief in um, a Christian-like creator, but he's not in any way... Um, signing up to any kind of biblical... He's not a Noah man, is he? He's not a Noah man, no. Um, he's He's not literally interpreting Genesis he probably isn't particularly interested in Revelation at all what he wants to do is learn about God, God through his creation so he wants to do natural theology as opposed to scriptural theology so his whole theory then comes out of this and he posits that if you're going to have this uplift that is constantly regenerating the surface of the earth then it's got to be an ongoing cyclical eternal process with no beginning no discernible beginning <laughs> or discernible end yes yeah. that's his that famous quote people, no, yes. no vestige of a beginning no prospect of an end yeah. um, and that again comes out of this deistic theology a, crea a divine creator would not have created an earth that would break <laughs> can, can, can I just come to you at the end of this part of the uh, programme that uniformitarianism supplanted catastrophism, was it about this time can you tell us, is there a turning point is Lyle, is it Lyle who, uh, who who gathers disciples uh, not least in other fields, not least Darwin of course, right. who just come to his point of view and that becomes that rolls through and catastrophism drops off as the first stage of the rocket if indeed it was that even it, well, uh, uh, as a first approximation, um, yeah. then, then, then it was probably that. Lyle was very influential. You know, he was. Uh, you know, he, he, 
he was clearly a persuasive man. He was, you know, as well connected, you know, in, in, in the societies. Um, you know, he was a very good geologist, you know, again, for the day in, in, in the terms Terrified of people, didn't he? Ruskin said the clink, clink, clink of those hammers <laughs> driving him mad up in the lake district. Yes, quite. Disproving everything he believed in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there was probably an actual conservatism, you know, in science, which there is even now. If, if, if there are two possible explanations for something, you know, given all the degrees of freedom one had in interpretation, then it's usually better to choose a less dramatic one. And in the early days of the Geological Society, they were set up to, uh, not to publish ideas, but to gather data. You know, so there was a, a kind of a mindset, I think, which said, let's just, you know, get and, the evidence first. And as I understand it, the, 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 the entrance of Darwin into, into the intellectual field reinforced and, and overthrew anything else. Things were gradual. Things took, we now, not 75,000 years, mm. but millions and millions and millions of years. We couldn't count the millions. Uh, and the whole process uh, was seen in a completely different way, the way the world had started, the way the world continued. Mm. And Lyell was immensely influential in that mm -hmm. because Lyell did fire... Darwin and gave Darwin, in a sense, seeded the big idea. So let's say catastrophism drops away. But, Andrew Scott, things begin to change again. I hope I'm right here. If I'm not, we will <laughs> finish the program now. In the 90s, <laughs> in the 1960s, when the Alvarez partners and the geologists um, began to think again about catastrophism, can you tell us about why that, why that neocatastrophism, as we have to call it now, came back? Yeah, I think we should actually go back into the, in the, to the late, middle, late 50s and early 60s. There's several things that happened then, particularly relating to um, observations of how sediments were formed. Of course, in, in Lyle's view, everything you know, took a long period of time. You know, these sediments took a long time to accumulate and so forth. But there was a recognition in the 50s and into the early 60s of a series of, of rocks which they realised were deposited very fast. They're called turbidites. So these were sediments which had accumulated on the, the shelf of the, on, on the, on the sea floor, which suddenly moved and then went down into a deeper basin and formed very instantaneous, very thick deposits. In some cases, these may only be a few meters, you know, centimetres or metres thick, such as you see them very nicely displayed in the cliffs around Aberystwyth, which many people have seen on their televisions recently. Um, and these layers of rock, each one of those was deposited an instant in time. But they realised that some of these single layers of rock may be of up to 30 or 40 metres thick, deposited an instant. So that was a very great change in people's understanding of, of how some sedimentary deposits formed. And then the discovery of what they then called tempestites. Obviously, you realise these are storm deposits. In other words, a single storm event formed a bed. So people were beginning to think, well, hang on, it's not just a matter of gradual accumulation of sediment, but there may be periods of very rapid deposition. Can I just go to Lushnak? I, I mentioned the uh, the massive crater in Mexico. Was the, that takes us into the 60s. Andrew quite rightly went back uh, uh, 10 or 15 years. Did that have a huge impact on geologists as well as on the, uh, the, ba the, the Earth? Uh? Yes, um, it, it, it surely must have done. I mean, earlier ideas... People had been unwilling earlier to to accept notions of extinction at all, and it was fairly gradually that those came in through the nineteenth century um you know and until really exploration into the late nineteenth century really established it for certain there there were still people saying, but no, these animals could still live somewhere on the earth so 
It's only when you come into really the late, later 19th century and then the 20th century that extinctions are generally accepted. You get more and more um, confirmation of, of a series of extinction events um, more than once. Clearly, the, the, the extinction of the dinosaurs is the one everyone knows, but there's a number of them um, throughout the geological timescale. And explanations for these will no longer do with, well the climate changed and and you know there was an ice age so obviously some species die out some migrate that that's no longer an adequate explanation so when people begin to find um evidence of other especially sort of extraterrestrial if that's not too too silly a phrase you know well, a, a, meteorite an astro- a meteorite strike as soon as you extraterrestrial. say extraterrestrial it sounds a bit dramatic yeah, it sounds but... okay no, <laughs> that's what it was <laughs> but exactly so so you know so that that kind of changing idea is is very important. Yeah. yeah and so neocatastrophism comes back as a factor in this uh, in, in this in this dis- in this de- debate or examination. And there's the phrase was it Stephen Gould's phrase punctuated equilibrium. Yes. Yes. And that's again. Did, did it's, that bring? It's does a that way, help us at all? It, it, it helps us. Um, it, it, if you like, at the the, the, the micro scale of, of catastrophism, in, in that if you look at the record, you now we 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 face with a whole messiness of trying to take these strata, you know, and all the evidence in them, um, for which for a long time was mainly the fossils, and looking to see how these changed, and and. and if you collect them, what you tend to find is, is, is sometimes you find species gradually change from one to the other, but more often you see a species appears, seem to stay much the same for its one, two, three, five million years, uh, and then disappear and another one comes in, quite different. Uh, so uh, this was then taken, if you like, the, the logical conclusion, uh, which was uh, Niles Eldridge and Stephen Gould said, OK, well, biology works this way. You, you get um, species can evolve quickly, and then spread around the world and stay more or less as they are and then become extinct. So that was an alternative, you know, if, if you like, at the, the smaller scale to the idea of, of this smooth, gradual progression. Andrew, can, um, a figure who was of great importance in the resurgence of uh, catastrophism was the geologist Derek Eger. Is that how I pronounce yes, it? Yes, that's correct. Yes. I should have checked it. Yes, yes. no, Derek, Derek Eger. Eger. What was his argument? Well, he wrote a book called The Nature of the Stratigraphic Record, and uh, he argued several points. One is that... Paleontolo- what date are we talking about? Well, we're talking about 1973. Right, thank you. So he published that book, which I think is hugely influential, because he then he made the point that paleontologists can't live by uniform materialism alone. Um, he said that, actually, when you look at Earth history, you're only seeing tiny records... So he had the what he called the phenomenon of the gap being more important than the record. In other words, he's saying, well, actually, when you're looking at a sequence of rocks, you're not seeing the totality of geological time, you're seeing many gaps. But then because he saw this change in interpretation of some sediments, he, he then said, well, sometimes the sedimentation is very rapid and spasmodic. And so he called this the phenomenon of the catastrophic nature of much of the stratigraphical record. And so he reckoned that even on a small scale, small scale catastrophes, not, you know, so not just the large global scale catastrophes, but even smaller scale catastrophes had a major impact on how we see the Earth. So he came up with this, this wonderful quote that he said, the history of any one part of the Earth like, is like the, the life of a soldier. It consists of long periods of boredom and short periods of terror. 
Can I just go back briefly, Anne? We didn't quite do justice to the Alvarez uh, uh, discovery of the impact. Can you briskly do that? Sadly, we're coming to the end of our Earth time. Yeah, well, it it, it was a... a, a, a distinct change and, and it, it did cause an impact in more senses than one because for the first time um, there was clear evidence um, of a cause uh, for uh, one of the great extinction events uh, one of the great mass extinctions events of the past uh, you know the idea of, of this um, you know this element this iridium rare on earth but common in meteorites being sprinkled in one thin layer around the earth um, at the same level where the dinosaurs and, and a number of other creatures became extinct. That was the first time there was a, um, you know, the, the chain was closed, if you like. Uh, the idea remains controversial to an extent, but nonetheless it marked a change from any number of possible alternatives to here we have concrete evidence. Nisha, what state is the debate, what, what's the state of the debate today? Uh, well, um, as, as Jan said, it, it's still very controversial, um, and I think... Um, that um, there are a number of phenomena that are sort of leading people to um, engage with neocatastrophic positions again and not just mass extinction events. I think um, the sudden, um, fairly sudden anyway, discovery of, of not just one but many super volcanoes across the Earth. Um, the growing awareness um, both scientifically and publicly of anthropogenic climate change is making people think more generally about sudden climatic changes um, as well so um, I think perhaps everything is up up for debate once more Is there a sense yes. under, oh, sorry but I think we can yeah, please, please Yes I, I think it, it required that both you know Lyle was right and Cuvier was right, and they're two end members. <laughs> yes, I, of I think spectrum. we're going to end on this the, the <laughs> consensus that the opposites, the opposites obtain. And you said it, Ager said it in mm. that quotation, didn't he? Mm. Long periods of boredom, by which he probably meant the gradualism, yes. mm-hmm. and a few seconds of terror, by which he obviously meant catastrophe. Yes. I think sort of that is where we're at. I think a middle position is probably the right one. Well, isn't that satisfying? <laughs> <laughs> we've come, we've come yeah. to the end, we've come to a neat conclusion. Well, thank you very much. Um, Next week we'll be talking about the Phoenicians, the great traders and sailors and language makers of the ancient world. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Lucia Pinea, Andrew Scott, and to Jan Zala-Sevich. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.